Uh, That might not be a song that you've sung in several years here, but I sing that almost every night to my boys whenever they ask for a worship song. That's, you go back to the ones that you learned as children, and that is one that um, we worship in. And it's funny because they typically sing it uh, in a a lower octave, more like Barry White. And and I was trying to go Barry Manilow today, and I ended up sounding like I was in junior high with the voice cracking. And so today I glorified God in the voice crack, right? In our imperfection, we can still honor and glorify him. So, uh, I'm so glad to be here with you this morning. And we're going to dive right in because I, I, we're continuing to, to journey through the book of Philippians. And last week, we touched on what to me is the center of this entire letter. It is, it is the point, it's, it's Paul's thesis statement from which everything else flows out. It's what he was leading into, and it's ultimately what he is going to unpack throughout the rest. And so rather than just letting us touch on it one weekend and keep going, we're going to dive back into that passage one more week. And we're just going to explore it because there's such a depth and richness that we've only just scratched the surface. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And these first 11 verses are in my humble opinion, the thesis statement of Philippians. It is the core message that Paul will unpack through the rest of it. He says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness 
and compassion. So understand here, he's talking to believers that are living in a Roman city, surrounded by people who call Nero their savior and their king. And he's saying, no, if you identify as a follower of Jesus Christ, if he's more than your savior, he is your king and your Lord. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love. Being one in spirit and one in mind. And now he gets to the meat of this. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, is master to the glory of God the Father. You know, this is the passage that I have found myself returning to again and again and again over the course of this last year, particularly in the last six months. As so much of our world has been thrown out of whack, right? As, as we've had to grapple with, what do I do with a face mask? Do I wear it to not to wear it? What about all of my freedoms? Do I, do I relinquish them or, or do I try to fight for them? And what about all of this racial tension that we're experiencing? What should my posture be in all of this? And what about this election? As it just feels more and more, we are so radically polarized as a people that there simply are two alternative realities that we're living in, and, and there's very little middle room. How should I act? Because if I were to listen to the message I'm getting from the world around me, from society, it feels a whole lot like we are living in one huge game of King of the Hill. Right? Any of you guys ever played that game? Where you, you and whomever you're playing with pick a place that is the hill that you're trying to get to. And, and the winner is the one who is at the top for the longest. And then you, you expend yourself biting and scratching and kicking and hitting and pulling down as you try to get to the top of the hill. And every other person you're playing with is your competition. And the goal is to push them down so that you can rise up. Last week, we talked about how this is the way that the world works with humiliation. This idea that I've got to make other people seem smaller, if only in my own eyes, so that I seem bigger. I've got to push other people down so that I can rise up. And we see that play out in so many different ways. And what Paul is saying is there's an alternative way to approach the world, an alternative way to approach people, and that is to stop looking at them as if they are competition and start looking at them as if they matter. But in order to get there, there has to be a fundamental shift in our minds. We've got to stop thinking of ourselves primarily as citizens of the kingdoms of this world, whichever kingdom we find ourselves living in. For the Philippians, it was the kingdom of Rome. That was the empire whose values were shaping their values. For us, it's the kingdom of America. 
And we have to stop thinking of ourselves primarily as citizens of that kingdom and instead look at ourselves primarily as citizens of the kingdom of God, where God's will is ultimately our greatest goal, where Jesus, not some politician, not Nero, is our king. And his values, Jesus' values, shape our values. That's the goal. That is the heart. That is the secret Paul is suggesting to what it means to live as ambassadors of the kingdom of God living in this broken, sin-scarred world. And so he says, stop thinking of yourselves more highly than you do. You know, stop thinking of yourselves as if your own ambition and climbing some broken stairway to heaven is the greatest goal in life and pushing others down in order for you to get to the top of the hill is the goal. Or tearing another person's character apart so that you can identify yourself as the alternative to that person. And in your relationships with one another, rather than looking at them as competition to be torn down and made to feel smaller, you should treat them with the same mindset that Christ Jesus did. And now he goes into this beautiful explanation of the heart of Jesus. And how Jesus' approach to other people is radically different from what the world suggests we should do. And some theologians believe that verses 6 through 11 are one of the earliest Christian hymns or earliest Christian creeds that they would repeat as a declaration of who it was that they were serving. And that may be true. Or maybe Paul wrote it specifically for this. But the heart of this is he points to Jesus and says that is who we need to take our cues from. So let's begin to unpack verse 6. In your relationships with one another, this is verse 5, just to get a, a running start. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset, mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. Now, this is one of the clearest articulations in Scripture that Jesus was more than just a good guy that God said, I'm going to use him. This points directly to the fact that Jesus was divine. He was God in human flesh. This is one of many places in Scripture, but it's one of the clearest articulations. Jesus was God in human flesh. And yet, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And he could have, right? Jesus could have shown up on the, on the planet, clothed in light, radiant, resplendent, shooting fire, you know, uh, shooting lightning bolts from his fingertips. And causing the, 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 the clouds to, to rumble and, and the, you know, thunder to roll and the earth to tremble. And people would have fallen to their knees and worshipped him out of abject terror. Not that reverential fear that is the beginning of wisdom, but simply terror of a God who stands amongst them. But he didn't do that, did he? He didn't come to earth to make people worship him. He came for a very different reason. And we read here that although he was in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Now, I want you to underline those words, made himself nothing. What does that mean? Because I'll tell you, I, I don't particularly love the way that the NIV translates this word. Because it sounds like it's insinuating that Jesus somehow began to think less of himself. 
right? That Jesus began to go, I suck. And everybody else is better than me. So I guess I should die instead of them, right? And that is absolutely the antithesis to what Paul is suggesting. That is not at all. Remember last week when we talked about humility? We said humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less so that you can begin to see other people and begin to care for them. So Jesus is making himself nothing, is not suggesting that he just began to think, you know, no one likes me, everybody hates me, guess I'll eat some worms. Instead, I think it's important for us to go back to what the original word was. The word there in Greek is kenosis. It's a single word. Kenosis. It means to empty oneself. So we can read this, and, and many of the other tr modern translations use this terminology instead. They said, rather, he emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. He emptied himself, like you would a cup, pouring himself out. But of course, this begs the question, what did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of his power, of his privilege, of, of the prestige that was due him. And any other P word you can think of, he emptied himself of all of those things, right? Because he was God in human flesh. He was part of the triune Godhead. He was the one, when God spoke the world into existence, we know from John 1 that he was the divine logos, the word through which God spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. He was present with God and active in the creation of the world. But he was not only one who helped form the world, he was also the one for whom the world was made. He is the rightful owner of creation. This is who he is. And yet he did not consider that something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't come down and say, worship me. In fact, what he did is he took off his divine radiance. In the book of Daniel, Daniel describes Jesus, says one like the Son of Man who is clothed in the sun, shining brightly, so bright that you can't even look at him. That is how Jesus is often depicted prior to taking on human flesh, as one you can't even look at because of his holy radiance. And yet he takes off that radiance and he wraps himself in corruptible flesh and he is born into this world and not born into a palace to a king and a queen so that he again is given honor and prestige. He's born in, into a barn to a couple of nobodies in some Galilean backwater and laying in a feeding trough. I think because he was declaring to the world that he was coming to be a savior, not just for the well-connected and the powerful and the elite. He was coming to be um, the Messiah and the Redeemer of everybody, including stinking shepherds who were the lowest of the low in that day and age. So Jesus divested himself, took off his radiant glory, and entered into human flesh. And when he did so, he also took off or emptied himself of his divine power. If you read any of the Gospels, what you'll notice is that there was not a single miracle that Jesus performed prior to him being anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. Every miracle that he did was done 
in and through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in him. The same Spirit that enabled him to walk on water and drive out demons and feed crowds of people with just a couple of loaves of bread and fish and raised the dead and ultimately raised him from the dead, that same Spirit is alive in you and me. And he did it by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, not by his own divine power. Now, why did he empty himself? He did it so that he could redeem humanity, so that he could move towards us, so that he could experience what we experience. And ultimately, so that he could be our redeemer. If he wasn't willing to take on flesh, he couldn't redeem humanity. And so he chose to. And he went through life not looking to be served, but looking to serve. But this isn't because Jesus felt like he was less important. It's because he knew who he was. And there's no greater picture of that, I think, than, fa- than what is found in John chapter 13. So take a left and go to the book of John chapter 13. We're going to dive in here to one of the last moments we get before Jesus is arrested and crucified. He's having a meal with his disciples. It's a Passover meal. He's having it just a little bit early because he knows that his time is pretty short. And so we read in John chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them to the very end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So he knows that the end is coming very, very quickly. Now pay attention to verse 3, though, because this is where the rubber meets the road. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. That is crucial. Because Jesus knew two things. He knew who he was. Son of God. God in human flesh. And he knew what he was about. He was about his father's business. He was about redeeming humanity. Because that was God's will. That is what he came to do. He knew all of these things. He knew his identity. And he knew his purpose. And because of the foundation of that. Verse 4. He got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. He knew who he was. He knew what he was about. So because he knew that, he got up to serve. And after he had poured water into a basin, he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. We often look at foot washing as as this wonderful, celebrated way of serving another person. But we have to understand that in Jesus' day, this was scandalous what he's doing. Because foot washing was the lowest, most menial task anybody could perform. Remember, people are walking around in sandals on dirty, dusty roads where animals go to the bathroom all day long. By the end of the day, their feet stink. And they walk into someone's home. Obviously, you don't want them tramping around your house, and you want to kind of honor your guests so you have somebody there to wash their feet, but you wouldn't have the head of the household do it. You wouldn't have the guest of honor wash their feet. No, you would have the most menial slave in the house wash their feet. This is tantamount to if you're having a a house party and somebody clogs the toilet, who are you going to call, right? 
you're not going to call the person putting the party on. You're going to call one of the servants to take care of it because you want it to be out of sight, out of mind. And Jesus knew this. And yet he was making a declaration to his disciples that I am not like the world tends to approach things. I'm not coming to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And this is the most powerful way I can illustrate this for you. Is I'm going to take the posture of a servant. I'm going to take off my, my rabbi robes. And I'm going to wrap myself in a ratty old towel. And I'm going to get down on my knee and I'm going to begin to wash your feet. And when, when Jesus comes to Peter, we begin to see just how crazy this is. Because Peter goes, Jesus, what are you doing? You're going to wash my feet? No, that's ridiculous. I should be washing your feet. And Jesus goes, Peter, unless you let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. Unless you will allow me to serve you, you don't really know what I have come to do for you. And you'll have no part with me. And then I love Peter because he's like, well, then wash all of me. And Jesus is like, no, dude, just let me wash your feet. Chill out. I love him. I really identify with Peter a lot. He's my kind of imperfect. In, in, case, in case Jesus' intention with this is lost on us, let's jump down to verse 12 for a moment. Because Jesus explains why he did what he did in verse 12. He says, when, they had fin- when he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes back on and returned to his place. And he looked at him, he said, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher, rabbi, and lord, or or curios, which is the word that a slave would use of a master, right? You call me teacher, rabbi, and master. And rightfully so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you that no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sends him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them, because I am sending you out to be my messengers of this good news of a king who got up off of his throne, entered into the reality of his subjects, took off his divine raiment, laid his crown aside, put his scepter aside, symbol of his power, put on the clothes of a commoner, and gave his life for his subjects. I have come to serve, not to be served. And I'm sending you out as ambassadors who carry that same heartbeat. Not 24 hours later, Jesus would trump even himself by by picking up his cross and dragging it through the streets of Jerusalem to the jeers of people mocking him. You call yourself the king of the Jews? Get yourself out of this one. He dragged that cross as his back bled from where he had been whipped and as his his forehead and his head wept blood because of the crown of thorns they had shoved onto his head. He dragged it to the base of Skull Hill, the place of execution right right outside of the city of Jerusalem. And there he hung on the cross, not because he deserved it, not because he had something he needed to atone for, if there was ever anyone in history who had nothing to gain from dying on a cross, it was him. But he did it as an act of love. Love for the Father because he was here to do the Father's will. And because, God, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven, 
he was willing to submit himself to the cross, but he also did it as an act of love for rebels like the men and women in that crowd who were shouting, crucify him. And the mob of people who had come to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he did it for rebels like you and me. Imperfect image bearers who have been shaped by our culture more than we are shaped by the kingdom of God, whose values reflect that of the society into which we were born as opposed to the society into which we are invited to be born again into. That's who he did it for, as an extreme act of love. And Paul points to that, and he says, in the same way that Jesus emptied himself, poured himself out, and took the posture of a servant, so we should do the same. Because whereas the world says the higher you climb, the more people are under you to serve, he flips the whole paradigm and says in the kingdom of God, those who have climbed the highest have the most people to serve. You and I are invited to follow Jesus' example in putting others ahead of ourselves. But we don't do it because they are naturally better than us. We don't do it because we suck and they're awesome. We do it because we know who we are and we know what we're about. I've been thinking this week, God, our, our God is a God of props. Right? He, um, he uses a cross, for instance. This symbol of torture to remind us of his grace. And since our God is a God of props, I figured, well, I'll, I'll follow suit. I'll use some props. So, when you say yes to Jesus, when you invite him to become not just your Savior, but your Lord, it's like he gives you two welcome home gifts. The first gift is tagged identity. And when you open this gift... In it, you find a sparkling white robe. I didn't have one of these because if I did, it wouldn't be sparkling white anymore. So I had to buy this. And what I want you to think about as you look at this robe, as I'm going to put it on, and I'm going to stop being so sparkling white, I'm sure, pretty quick, is that this reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. You remember that story, right? Of a kid who represents you and me, who was so impatient to get what it was coming to him, that he basically said, Dad, I wish you were dead because I want what's mine. <laughs> and, and, and his father gives it to him, this father who in the story represents our father in heaven. And this kid takes his inheritance and he runs off to their equivalent of Vegas and he spends it on wine and women and he blows his entire inheritance. And one day he wakes up in a pigsty, covered in the muck of his mistakes, He's fallen so far that this good Jewish boy who would never think of eating pork because it would make him unclean longs to fill his tummy with the, the very slop that he's feeding these pigs. He's that starving. He's fallen that low. And he wakes up one day and goes, what am I doing? Even the servants in, in my father's household live better than I do. And so he begins this long journey home, not to ask to be invited back as a son, but rather to be taken in as a slave of his father's household. And he begins his 
I messed up speech as he's going and he's practicing it. But when he gets there, you know the story. The father who represents our heavenly father sees him from a distance. And rather than waiting and watching his son do the walk of shame, he runs to his boy, throws his arms around him, takes in that scent and says, Hey, servants, go get my son the finest, whitest new robe. And he takes off his son's filthy clothes that are covered in the muck of his mistakes, that are a reminder of all of his poor choices. And he puts on a brand new robe. He covers his son, reminding him, you are not the sum total of your mistakes. You're my son, whom I love. You're not a slave to your sins. You're a child of God. And Paul says virtually the same thing. Remember, what does he say right at the very beginning of the book of Philippians? He's writing this not to sinners living in Philippi. Who is he writing it to? Saints. He's reminding them, in Christ, this is who you are, not this. You're not your mistakes. That's not what defines you. What defines you is what Christ has done in you. You are clean. You're a child of God. You're a saint. Even though all of us recognize we don't deserve it, and we certainly don't feel like it, and we certainly don't live like it all the time. This is who we are. This is our identity in Christ. So that's the first gift he gives us, is a new identity. The second gift he gives us is tagged purpose. And this is where it gets interesting. Because in this box is a tattered old towel. Now I thought about for a moment putting a brand new white towel in here. In fact, I, I, I had to buy one of those too because none of my towels look that way. They all look like this. I thought about it, but I realized that, that that's not fitting. Because the reality is if we have brand new white towels, our natural impulse would be never to use those towels for what they were designed for, Right? If you have a brand new white towel, what do you do? You put them in the closet, you make sure your kids and your husband stay far away from them, and then when the guests come over, you stick them there and you stick some hand towels on top so that they know it's for looks, it's not for use. Because the moment they're used, they're no longer brand white. And, and you know what I realized? That's not the heart of Jesus. This is who we are. This is who we will stay. But Jesus intentionally took off his divinity. He, he took off his divine privilege and his power, and he took on human flesh. He wrapped himself in tattered, fallible humanity, and he began to serve. The reason I picked this towel is because at the end of the day, we were designed as saints and children of God to get our hands dirty, to serve other people, to enter into people's hurt when somebody is shivering and cold because they're lonely we get to come as towels in the hands of a loving god and wrap them up in a warm embrace when people are crying not not pretty crying that ugly mascara running kind of crying right to come and dry their eyes it doesn't matter what happens to the towel because they are so much more important than the towel when our kids have spilled all over the floor. Yet again, they've done exactly what we said not to do. Do not eat 
in the living room, don't eat on the carpet, and now they've got their cereal all over. Rather than treating them as awful human beings and beating them down, we come and we begin to clean up their messes. <laughs> to get really graphic, when they have clogged the toilet of this world, we are the people who take off our... Our masters of the house robe, and we put on our dirtiest clothes, and we enter in and we unclog that toilet for them because that is what our Lord and our Savior did for us. And that is what He is inviting us to do. Not because they're more important than us, but because we know who we are. And we know what we're about. That said, if I am honest with you, I find this at work in me. And don't worry, I'm not going to ask any of you to come up and wash your feet right now. I know all of you are like curling your toes, like, please don't call on me. That's not what this is for. Although I could, and I wish I, I had time. This is what I find at work in me. I was created as a child of God to serve others as an ambassador of the heart of my God to care about their concerns, to put their needs ahead of my own, not because mine own don't matter, because I love them, and I, have, I am loved by God. But here's what I find that actually happens in my life, is that the cares of this world begin to seep into my life. <laughs> why, are my, why are my freedoms being impinged upon right now? When will this lockdown finish and we can finally get back to living and start gathering? Why, when can we put the extra rows back in? When will we have to stop wearing masks to go into places? When will my kids start listening to me? When will my finances rebound? What's going to happen with work? When will my spouse recognize how awesome I am? Probably never. So on and so forth. What are the things that you're concerned about? What are the things that are consuming your thoughts? What's going to happen in this election? Will my candidate win so that we can have power, so that we can force through what we want to happen over and against the wishes of other people? And we find, our, we find this law at work. We were created to be people who could move towards others and absorb their concerns. But in the reality... We all find ourselves self-absorbed, filled with our own concerns. And ultimately, every time we try to help other people, I'm sorry, Rob, and I know this is a nice, clean stage, right? But we find ourselves moving towards hurting people. And all we're doing is we're wiping our own concerns all over them. Oh. oh. I love you, right? Ah, Robin, come here. Wendy, I love that you were running for mayor. Can I just serve you for a moment, right? And we, we end up, as much as we were created to serve others, we wipe our concerns all over it. We make an unholy mess. Oh, I want to I wipe your tears, and instead we just wipe our own concerns all over them. We make them have to bear the burden of our own concerns. I'm not used to wearing a robe, obviously. I'm coming undone up here. We, we move towards messes and we just wipe our own messiness all over them. 
And that's if we can see other people's concerns. But I, I find this at work in me. I'm not sure if you, you can identify. I want to be concerned about other people's needs, but I can very seldomly even look beyond my own mess, my own circumstances to see the needs of others. I want to care about what's going on in their lives, but I've got so many things I'm concerned about right now, and they have so consumed me, so saturated my thoughts that I am self-absorbed. And I can't possibly begin to see or care about the needs of my own family, let alone people down my street or people at work or people at school. And you can forget about people I've never met or whom I consider to be enemies, right? Their needs don't compute because I got enough needs of my own, thank you very much. Can you identify? And what Paul is inviting us to do is begin to empty ourselves of ourselves, just like Jesus did. Of course, this begs the question, and I'm sorry I got you all wet, Wendy, and not so much, Dee, you deserved it. But we need to begin asking ourselves, what, what exactly do we need to empty ourselves of? A few things that come to mind. This is certainly not exhaustive. But we need to empty ourselves of our expectations. Right? Expect, I, I, I've often used expectations. We, we are presented with expectations, which is a picture of what we want the world to look like. And then we have reality. And we have a choice. Do I tear up my picture of what I want the world to look like, tear up my expectations, and embrace reality for what it is? Or do I embrace my expectations and spend my days tearing up my reality? I don't deserve to live in a place like this. I deserve, I deserve to be somewhere nicer. I, I expected that, you know, life would look this way. And this is, and, and we, then we begin to compare ourselves to other people, right? My wife often reminds my children, comparison is the thief of joy. And we wonder why we feel very little joy as we compare our lives to that of what people post on their social media feeds which I'm sure is exactly what they experience in their life, right? Because we all post the reality of the messiness of our lives on our social media feeds, except for the bad stuff. We forget about that. Or, or how about when, our, when the people in our lives don't match our expectations? Do we embrace the people for who they are and tear up our expectations? Or do we embrace our expectations and spend our days tearing them up? Why can't you be more like that person? Why can't you listen? Why won't you clean up after yourself? I'm so disgusted of this. Why do you keep talking back? Why are you raising your voice? Why are you raising your voice? Don't yell at me. Not that you guys have ever had that conversation. I'm just saying hypothetically. So one of the things that we need to empty ourselves of is our expectations. Another thing we need to empty ourselves is our self-sufficiency. Far too many of us, even though we call Jesus Christ our Savior, we go through life thinking that we need to somehow clean ourselves up. That we look at the messiness and we go, I got to make it look like this. I got to earn Christ's approval. I've got to be a good person so he'll love me. And we try to serve him in order to be loved. And that's the opposite of it. We're going to talk more about this next week. But at the end of the day, the reason that we serve 
is because we are loved. This is who we are. We are a child of God. We're a saint. Not because we've earned it. Not because we're really good people, but because he loves us that much. And we need him. If Jesus didn't do a single miracle without the enablement of the Holy Spirit, who are we to think that we can? So we need to empty ourselves of our self-sufficiency. I don't need Jesus. I don't need others. I got this. And the last thing that I recognize in myself that I need to empty myself of is, is my demands, my desires, my, my expectation of this is what I deserve. Right? What is it that you think? You finish the sentence for yourself. I deserve. Right? What privileges do you think you deserve? I work hard for my money. I deserve to spend it any way I want. I don't want other people telling me how to spend it. I don't want God to tell me how to spend it, let alone some politician. I'm a good person. I deserve to go to heaven. I deserve to have a, a thriving marriage. I deserve to have children that obey. I deserve, why are you laughing, Wendy? <laughs> we get it, right? I deserve to be happy. You want to know what you deserve? You want to know what I deserve? I deserve eternal separation from God. I deserve to be the one who bleeds out for my sins. I deserve death eternally. And I thank God that he does not give us what we deserve. I thank God that because he loved us so much, he gives us grace instead of death. That he takes sinners and he clothes us in righteousness. Not a righteousness of our own that we have earned, that we have somehow cleansed ourselves enough that we can be called whitish, but that we are called radiant saints, holy, set apart because of him. So those are the things, and those are just scratching the surface, but those are some of the things that we need to empty ourselves of. Now, this begs another question, a really important one. How do we begin to empty ourselves? How do we do it? I'll tell you what the world would suggest we need to do. You just need to try harder. If you find yourself self-absorbed, it's because you're selfish, and you're not trying hard enough. So try harder. That work for any of you? Doesn't for me. Certainly doesn't for my kids. Just try harder. That only pushes them further down. And how we empty ourselves is not to simply deny that our needs matter. It's not to say that what, what we are self-absorbed with doesn't matter. It does. It matters greatly. So to deny it's there, that's just ridiculous. Because it's there. That's self-denial. That's, that's trying to blind ourselves. That's never helped at all. My wife's a marriage and family therapist in large part because her goal is to help people to recognize what's there so they can do something about it. Not just stay in that state of self-denial. So I ask again, how do we begin to deal with our self-absorption? With what 
has absolutely saturated our lives so much so that we can't see the needs around us. And even if we could, we would just end up smearing it all over them. And the best thing I can think of is to do, I'm going to talk to this camera right now, is to bring this to the foot of the cross and to take all of these needs and to pour them out, to offer them as a sacrifice of prayer and praise to our God because he cares about them, to suggest that he doesn't, that we have to somehow deny that we have feelings and that these things matter, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. He does care about them, and he says, bring them to me. In fact, just a little bit later in this letter, in Philippians chapter 4, can we throw it up here while I'm doing this? This is what Paul says. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't be self-absorbed with concerns of the world. But in every situation, through prayer, through petition, offer your prayers to God with thanksgiving. And the peace of God, which transcends your circumstances, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A couple of books later, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, the same guy who said, Jesus, you shouldn't wash my feet. Uh-uh, no way. He wrote this. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up. Cast all of your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Do you get this? Emptying ourselves is not denying that we are saturated with concerns for the world. Emptying ourselves is not saying that what is consuming us doesn't matter. It does. It matters to us, and it matters to him because he's a good, good father. But he hasn't made us to go through life being self-absorbed, selfish individuals. The world has a name for that. It's called narcissists. The world has not made us to be absorbed with ourselves. The world, God created us in his image, redeems us, calls us his children, and saints. And he says, now go and do what I have done. Go and move towards the hurting and wrap them up. Be a cast around broken people. Go and move towards the lonely and say, you're not alone. I'm with you. Go and move towards those who are consumed with with shame and guilt and remind them that they don't have to stay there. That those are not the clothes that they were designed to wear. That God has made them in their image. Remind them of who they are. That's what he made us to do. How we do that, we'll talk about that next week. I simply want us to recognize that this is who we are and this is what we were created to do. It makes me think of a song. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward because there's a song that I grew up with, another one that I absolutely love. And it's a song that goes, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And you notice that as you continue to read Philippians chapter 2 here, it says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus did not seek to make his own name great, God made his name great. Because Jesus did not seek to make his own needs be met, God addressed those needs. And if we will pour ourselves out so that we can be used by God as towels in the hands of a loving God, reaching out to a hurting and broken world, he will not only take up our cause, and that doesn't mean that we're going to get everything we want, right? If your desire is, God, I want to have a house, bring that to him. Pour it out. Pray it. Tell him how you feel. Prayer isn't a time to be good. It's a time to be honest, right? It's not like he doesn't already know. Bring it to him, and then leave it there so that you can begin to see the hurting around you, even hurting people who have their own house. God, I want to have a spouse. When you pour that out to him and let him have it, then you can begin to see the hurting people around you, even those who have spouses and are still hurting. When we will humble ourselves God will use us to bring about his purpose and his plans in us and through us. And he will ultimately raise us up because we know this, the brokenness of this world will not get the last word. He does because of what Jesus did on the cross. This is who you are. You're a child of God. You are a saint, even though you don't feel like it. And this is what you were created to do, to join God in caring for other image bearers who are so covered in the filth of this world that they can't see past it. And my prayer is that we would be, you know, servants who are willing to take up our towels and get our hands dirty, that we would humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord so that he can lift us up and use us for his will. So let's worship God together.
with a song that I hope you're going to be singing in your car on the way home, but you never know how it all goes. But I love this song. If you want to clap, if you want to stand, whatever you want to do, Oh, Happy Day.
singing that on my walk home. Hey, um, a couple of thoughts. Whenever, as we are responding with song, I get a chance to kind of think back on what we've just talked about. Just go, Holy Spirit, what do you want to say? And this morning, I feel really compelled to say this. There are some of you right now who have, who have been resisting accepting the gift of your identity. You're trying to earn your identity through the things that you do, through how well you do them, through what people say about you, through battling your own inclinations. And there's a part of you that's exhausted, a part of you that's discouraged, a large part of you that's discouraged. And this morning, I think that there are some of you here that just need to accept this gift for what it is. It's a gift. You can't earn this. Your identity as a child of God and as a saint is not something you deserve. It is something that is freely given. And if that's you, it's real simple. You just, like, like any gift, you accept it and you say thank you. Is there anybody here right now that just honestly is struggling to accept your identity as a child of God? Yeah, Charlie, I know you. This might be a little bit too long for you, but, you know, your wife can hem it for you, buddy. Thank you. Now, actually, maybe both of you can fit in that thing. 
I suspect that for the vast majority of us here, though, this is the part of the gift that we struggle to accept. We have no problem letting Jesus be our Savior, but we have a real problem letting him be the Lord of our life that gets to dictate our values. We want to be served. We want to be comfortable. We want to have others spend their life serving us rather than recognizing that we have been called to serve others, not because we are beneath them, but because we know who we are. We're children of God. And so I, wanna, I, I just want to gift this. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise your hand because you'd all do it. I want to gift this to Wendy, who has chosen in this season to run for mayor because she cares for our city. I'm sorry, I know this. You don't want this. I'll put it right here. You don't have to take it. And I know she's very uncomfortable with this. This is why I wanted to give it to her. Because she's not doing it. Because she wants to be served. I know this woman. I know how she loves. And this is just an extension of that. And regardless of what happens in this election, I love the fact that she is living it. So, Wendy, thank you for modeling for others. And, yeah. And this is not an endorsement. This is simply an acknowledgement that each of us are called to do the same thing in our own spheres of influence. God, how would you help yourself to me today to love the people you've placed in my sphere of influence? I know that regardless of what happens in this election, she will continue to do that because she's been doing it as long as I've known her. So in your homes, pick up your towel and serve. In your workplace, pick up your towel and serve. At school, pick up your towel and serve. When you're at the gym, you are not there simply to serve your own ego and trying to make yourself look less of yourself, right? You are there as an ambassador of God. Pick up your towel and serve. Lighthouse, I love you. I'm grateful to be on this journey. Now let's take our robes and let's take our towels and let's go be the church. Have a wonderful week.